Hello everyone, Jonathan here, the host and producer of the Spatial Navigator podcast. I just have a quick announcement to make. Advances in genome biology and technology is upon us and Nanostring will be demonstrating its ultra-highplex 6K RNA and 120 protein targets on the newly released Cosmix SMI. It is such an exciting time to be a biologist and I would really encourage you to consider what biology you will discover and the treatments that they will lead to. If you would like to rewatch the presentation, please email me at jto at nanostring.com. That's jteo at nanostring.com. And I will get in touch with you on details of the re-airing. In line with AGBT, my guest today got her hands on an early technology access program from the Cosmics SMI together with Holga Hein. Dr. Azucena Salas is a collaborator with Dr. Hein, and they released a preprint on investigating inflammatory bowel disease with both single-cell RNA sequencing and the cosmic spatial molecular imager. We discussed the difficulties in treatment, interpatient heterogeneity, and the discovery of different macrophage populations, which seem to add to that heterogeneity and variation in phenotype. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Dr. Salas, it's such a joy having you on the podcast and what an exciting time, especially with the release and the imminent shipment of the Cosmics SMI. Yes, thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. Could you give us an introduction to yourself and the research that your team is doing? Yes, uh, so I actually trained in college as a chemist, so pretty far from what I actually do right now. It's actually a pretty cool thing that I like to do. It's like I like to explore many different things, and I think that's what's really characterized all the work that we're doing is that I think it's more the interest uh, that moves our research rather than having a particular background or a scope. Of course, you know, over the years, I become very specialized in what I do, but the idea always being to learn new things and to adapt to the new challenges. So I did end up doing research totally just by chance. So there's no romantic story here of me, about me being a girl <laughs> um, playing with microscopes because I was always interested in science, but I was also interested in many other things. I studied science because I like it. And then I ended up doing, you know, chemistry. And then when I finished school, just by chance, I ran into a friend from school that was already doing some research here in the hospital clinic in Barcelona in the lab. And she just told me about this opportunity to a group, you know, in gastroenterology looking for a PhD student. And so I applied and I got that position. And that really defined my entire career because I then met Julian Panes, which has been my mentor over the years. He recently retired, but he continues to be pretty active, especially in the industry arena. And he's a clinician, but a very talented person and also very curious. And when I joined his group, he had just got back from the States from doing a two-year stay, learning intravital microscopy. And so he was starting this entire research line, focusing on inflammation and leukocyte recruitment. And that's what I did as a PhD student, is work with the microscope, apply to many different animal models, and basically learn about cell-to-cell -cell interactions in vivo under flow conditions. But, you know, remember I was in a very clinical group and the basic knowledge of the group was very 
very small. So this was the days where you could do studies just by having a few mice, analyze several groups, treat it with certain conditions, and pretty much that will give you a good paper. And of course, things have changed a lot now, but that's the type of the studies we were doing. And we participated and contributed to a lot of the science that had ended up helping the development of some of the therapies that we have now in IBD that are anti-adhesion blocking drugs. So it was a very exciting time to be working on that. So when I finished my PhD, I, I knew I wanted to continue science, but I also knew that I needed to go out, you know, move somewhere else and do new stuff, learn new stuff, basically. And so I wanted to go to the States and I knew I wanted to go to the East Coast because the West Coast is way too far away for me. And so I applied to a couple of positions in Boston and I did get to join a laboratory that was working fully on integrating integrating structure and integrating function. I, I joined the lab of Tim Springer, which is one of the pioneers that cloned most of uh, many of the integrins that we know today. And so it was a tremendously fruitful experience. You know, I spent four years in super good hands, getting to do a lot of the basic science. I was the least basic scientist there because I was doing a lot of the in vitro underflow experiments. Everyone else was crystallizing proteins or expressing them in cells. So I was doing the most in vivo-like experiments, but it was a great experience. I learned a lot about integrins, of course, but also about the way of doing science. Tim is extremely, extremely knowledgeable person and also very careful and very conscientious of everything he does and publish. And I think that level of intensity and the standards that he applies to science is something that I fully adopted for our lab. I ended with the team and I decided to join another lab there in Boston too for a year. That was at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and with a gastroenterologist, but Rick Bloomberg, but he's also more well-known for his mucosal immunology work than rather than his gastroenterology work, I think. And so that year was also extremely helpful for me because it was coming kind of going back to the in vivo scenario. He works more in immuno- mucosal immunology, but in mice. And, and so that allowed me to position myself back into the in vivo arena. So I came back to Spain. That was like over 18 years ago when I came back. And since then, you know, I've been growing as a scientist, but also as an investigator, leading other people too, you know, growing my lab and becoming more and more independent over the years. But since I came back, I've been focusing on inflammatory bowel disease. So this has been my area of interest during the last 18 years. And I came back to the hospital where I was trained and work hand by hand with Julian, who by then had become one of the most well-known and respected IBD clinicians in the world. And so I had the opportunity to learn everything I know from IBDs because of him and the entire team here in, in the hospital. He also allowed me to have access to a lot of collaborations and a lot of people and, and a lot of opportunities more in the clinical application of what we do. And so for that, I, I Consider Julian the most important mentor, of course, followed by Tim and, and Rick, but Julian has had a huge impact. And so we have been, since I came back, focusing on inflammatory bowel disease. And I, we are interested in understanding at a molecular level and a cellular level what the disease is. Over the years, we've been applying different technologies. And so when I came back, I knew nothing about transcriptional expression. I had done some PCRs and that's it. So we started doing microarrays with the mucosal tissue. 
move then later on with your RNA seq, obviously, and we've been doing a lot of that. We do a lot of mucosal immunology, like phenotyping of cells, use biopsies and also blood, but mostly biopsies and tissue from patients to understand what cells are there. All the techniques that we would normally think about in a lab like ours, you know, like immunostainings, immunofluorescence, in-situ hybridization, things like that, we culture explants too. So depending on the question, you know, we apply different technologies to understand really what are the molecular mechanisms, what are the cells involved, and in which way they are contributed with what we're seeing in the patient. And so we ask the questions in the context of the patient. So we important questions are how different treatments affect what's going on, because from tweaking the system, you can build a picture of what is going on. You know, if you have the same patient now and then 10 weeks later after receiving a particular drug, you can start to answer questions about what is being modulated. How is that changing the disease in this patient? Is this really improving? What happens in a patient that does not improve with treatment, but is receiving the same drug? So this type of questions is really what we try to answer. So obvious final interest is to develop new drugs and to be able to even better to cure the disease. So not only develop new drugs, but find ways in which we could stop the disease from continuing progressing. So that's obviously a very hefty goal and I will never get to do that. But in the process, we learn a lot about what's going on and helping the development of new drugs. That's something that I experienced when I was studying how these systems can be so complex. For the basic science, you might be looking at one specific cell with one specific factor, but then in the larger system of tissue and the microenvironment, it's so varied, especially when it comes to drugs. You can have like a cascade of effects, but also with that microenvironment, patient to patient, you can have like vastly different responses. And that's something that you allude to in your publications. Yeah, that's exactly the complexity we're dealing with. So we don't have a system that is not one cell type. That's why single cell has been so eye-opening for us. And this is something that we started to do about five years ago. We started the first experiments with single cell, collaborating here in Barcelona with Holger Hain, and starting with zero knowledge on this. So it's been a tremendous four or five years of learning and getting new data constantly and trying to wrap our head around the new data. But precisely what you see is that that complexity, and not only that complexity of types of cells, each cell in many different states potentially. So each cell type, I mean, in different states, in a different location, and that's where location comes to place, because you could have this cell which could potentially interact with another cell you find also in intestine, but they might be completely far apart. So that is not even relevant. So that's where you could have all the data that single cell gives you, but without the spatial resolution, you still have, there's a layer of information that you are missing, right? Because the cell-cell interaction depends on the cell-cell proximity most of the time. I mean, it is true that certain mediators obviously can act in the tissue. They don't necessarily be in close contact if it's soluble mediators, etc. So, but there's a certain point that you need to be at least in the same area to be able to interact. And so, yes, that's what is really amazing about studying the intestinal mucosa. And I'm sure many other tissues, but intestinal mucosa is especially interesting because, I mean, pretty much every single cell type you can imagine is there, right? So it's there and in different flavors and it acts or responds to the inflammation. So there's nobody there that is just standing by when you have an inflammatory bowel disease. 
every single cell is going to be affected by what is going on. May not be directly affected, but eventually will receive the signals and will be affected because all of them can sense the environment. So at the end, when we take these biopsies from patients that have had the disease ongoing for years, what we're seeing is the end result. It's not the very early mechanisms. What we're dealing with is something that has been progressing for a certain amount of time. It could be a few months or could be many years or just a few days. You know, that would be very strange, but I would love to get to those patients. But normally when they come to the clinics is because they've been having the disease, even I diagnosed for a while. And then even if diagnosed, they could have different flares. So you're getting them at different points. And then to add to that complexity, every patient is a completely different, this is obvious, but it's a completely different person. So it has its own genetic background, its own environmental cues, and when you think about that, you just want to go to a corner and cry. You say, okay, I'm giving up. But that's what, well, that's what makes it interesting, right? It's so complex. That's why, you know, in the, in the paper, for example, that you look at the different patients in isolation, you know, they all share things, obviously, but their patterns of cell types and changes and expression could vary quite a lot. And there's certain, for example, cell types that you can only find in a few patients or even in one patient because they are extremely heterogeneous patients, which also makes trying to study and trying to conclude something that is useful for the patient population difficult and challenging. The way that you put it, yes, it might be overwhelming and you might want to cry in the corner, but it's almost like these books that kids like to play with. It's those ones which is like the choose your own adventure. If you do this, go to the next page. But the thing is, even between patients, now you've got different sets of books or like you're starting at a different point. And then you just got this cascade that branches out into a big tree on every way that it could possibly go. But then you've also got people starting on different points of that tree. We know that drugs work much better, any drug, if you are in an earliest stage of their disease. So we know that every single drug that has been developed shows the same pattern. If this is the first biologic or, or more advanced drug that you get, you respond much, much better than if you are in a patient that has already experienced several failures of several drugs. And that's yeah. unfortunately very common observation because that leads this refractory patients with no options, right? Or very few options, you know, very reduced chance of success, basically. And so we know that the inflammation, the mechanisms also are changing during the development of the disease. You know, remember these are chronic diseases and for most patients they'll be flares of the disease. And so they will have activity of the disease that they may go in remission for certain amount of time, but they could relapse. And so every time you relapse and you receive a new drug, the mucosa is changing. It's adapting to the new drug. It's escaping to the drug if it can, and then continue flaring. Or it's responding, and then you control the inflammation. But yes, within every patient, this is an evolving situation. So that is what it makes drawing signatures or drawing conclusions that could be useful to the entire population very difficult. And this is one of the limitations of all the clinical trials. If you look at them, there are drugs approved now that maybe show a percentage of response of 30% with a 10% placebo response or even less than 20% delta, maybe even just 10% delta between placebo and active drug, which just shows you that there's 
a huge advantage, the percentage of patients that respond to a given drug is normally pretty low. So either we're using the wrong drugs or, which I think it's what it's happening, is that patients are very heterogeneous and this idea that they will all respond to that wonder drug, that's not going to happen. Problem is how do you predict that? And that's where the field is, you know, it's been trying to evolve during the last 10 years, but there's still no real prediction in place. But that's what everyone talks about, right? Personalized medicine, being able to say, okay, will this patient respond or not? So in my opinion, the only way to do that is to first understand the heterogeneity. So to first understand why these patients are different. Because if we don't even know that, how do we expect to predict and, and being able to design the drugs that will treat each group? So that's what my group is focusing on right now, is understanding that heterogeneity using single cell and special transcriptomics. While you're talking about how the microenvironment post-treatment affects the recurrence of the disease or another flare-up post-drug introduction, that sounds a lot like what I've been talking to a lot of cancer researchers on. Post-chemotherapy, your microenvironment is a big predictor on patient survivability or even response to different drugs later on. So then I guess it needs to be extremely measured and thus the push for personalized care. Yeah, and in cancer, it's a great example of doing things that have moved the needle, really, like what we aspire to be able to do in IBD and, and other autoimmune diseases. I mean, this is true for all the immune diseases, immune-mediated chronic diseases, you know, like you have all the arthritis and psoriasis and MS and lupus, and all of these people are dealing with exactly the same problem, heterogeneity of the disease and inability to predict. And actually, we learn a lot from those studies because it's helping us, for example, think about technologies we can use or analytical approaches, you know, algorithms that can be used in our data to be able to classify patients. What they've done is first we classify patients and then that classification helps us predict. And I think that's where the success comes. In their case, I think one of the advantages of cancer, obviously, quote unquote, is that the immune response to the tumor is very patient-specific or patient-specific. Like there's real differences. And, you know, they have these like cold tumors and hot tumors. And we don't have that in IBD. Everyone is very different, but at the same time, very similar to each other. I don't have patients that don't have activated macrophages or that don't have activated fibroblasts. And they don't have an infiltrate of monocytes or neutrophils. You can have different degrees. That's true. But they all have very common composition in cell types. And so when we've tried to do patient classification based on those cell types, the only thing you can classify is inflammation, no inflammation, obviously. But if you want to take patients all with inflammation and then classify them, that's where the challenge is. Whereas in cancer, even just using single cell data, clustering data, the most simple analysis can help classify patients. And this can help in predicting drug response. So we don't have that because our tissue is not just the cells that respond to the tumor that we're studying, it's the entire tissue. And the tissue has a lot of all the resident cells and then the resident cells responding to the disease and then all the cells that come in and that are recruited, newly recruited. So we have a mixture of phenotypes. But when you compare patient to patient in terms of cell proportions, that doesn't allow us to say, okay, this patient has a lot of, you know, macrophages, should respond to anti-TNF. That doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Because even then, it's a temporal thing because it depends on when you took the sample and what stage they're at or what's happening in that moment of time. Yeah, we look at the pictures of the tissue. Uh, you can pick a part where, depending what you want to look at, when there's inflammation, you know, in healthy colon, it's beautiful, you know, that you have the very nice structure, everything is, the architecture is so nicely, you know, everything is where it should be, right? But then you go to an inflamed tissue and it's a complete chaos. You lose structures, you have this overgrowth of cells, aggregates, and it's really difficult to say, okay, this is what is happening in this patient because you look to the next biopsy and it's very different as. So yes, but that's something we have to work with in this type of research is like that degree of heterogeneity. I cannot get to, I cannot do a studies where I biopsy patients in several locations because the cost of that. The amount of data and the resources you'll have to just study a group of patients will be. So we take biopsies from one side and then we decide that that's the relevant signature for that patient. But yes, you're right. Ideally, I would like to have studies where I could sample different places. I could sample over time, several times, but obviously that's not the reality. That's something that I've thought about as well take a biopsy of the tumor at different time points or within different areas, but then it's too much to just leave it in. So most of the time, the tumor is fully resected anyway. I'd like to talk about the preprint publication. Do you mind talking us through that? So this is our first study using single cell in the lab. So this is like a very wanted baby <laughs> for us. You know, like we were really, you know, it's, it's a work of love from the lab. In this study that we have the first biopsy that we ever did with single cell analysis. And so since then, we've done over 100 samples and have accumulated a lot of data. But this is really where we started. We started by asking this very simple question which we were just discussing, patient heterogeneity. And we thought, very naively, that given that Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are two different diseases that have endoscopically different features, they have different locations, you know, they can share locations like colonic location, but their distribution is different. They have different complications. They have different type of intramural or more intramural, more superficial inflammation, etc. We thought if we study them at single cell resolution, we should be able to classify patients as colitis, but we cannot even do that because when we took out these samples and tried to do that, we found that we have some patients that are like here and then some patients in both groups that are more like this. So one of the first conclusions was, yes, this is going to require more than just looking at clustering analysis of single cell resolution. And that's what we're working on now, you know, trying to do more like gene program analysis within these cells, etc. This is like the future that we're looking into. But, you know, we did this study still, and even though our first question, we could not answer that. We learned a lot because then we characterize all the cells and that's what we show in the study. And we particularly focus on the macrophage population because the macrophages in IBD, at least at the single cell resolution, they had not been described that much in previous publications. We also found that when we look at the macrophage composition, patient by patient, is in the compartment where we see most heterogeneity when comparing patients. So for example, if you take the epithelial component, which is a huge part of these biopsies. You see huge changes in patients compared to healthy colon, that's for sure. But when you look patient to patient and you compare them, those changes are very similar in all patients. But when we do that with macrophages, we see more heterogeneity. So if we want to find what is the cause of the heterogeneity, it makes sense to focus on the myeloid compartment because that's where we're seeing 
most difference among patients between themselves. Also, the stromal compartment had that same feature. And so we started going deeper into the macrophage and then we characterized the macrophages that are present in the healthy colon, identifying two types of resident cell types and that we could find also in other data sets. They hadn't been reported because those data sets didn't focus on that, but the data sets are out there. And then most importantly, we look into the inflamed tissues and then you start seeing a lot of different, and this is perfectly fitting with everything we know about macrophages. They're resident cells, they're everywhere, but they are super plastic and they're super sensitive to their environment. And that's what I think it, it makes them so cool and such good reporters of what's going on in the tissue. And that's one of the things that we want to continue doing is like focusing on the macrophage compartment because it is telling us what's going on in the tissue. The macrophage adapts to those signatures and then what you're seeing is the response to those signatures. And so we found different types of clearly pro-inflammatory macrophages that we label as M1 just because that's what's been used before to refer to more pro-inflammatory fibroblasts. We also found that some of these M1s were different. And when we look at the data sets in the literature found other cell types, they all have a common signature of macrophage and inflammation, but their top genes were different. So this is what I think is happening is that Probably if we study 10 more patients, we would also find potentially not 10 different types of macrophages, but two or three more types of inflammatory macrophages, because these are really very patient time specific in, and in their because they're reflecting that. And I think that's one of the messages is that macrophages can be really important to study and understand because they can change quickly, they adapt quickly, and they can be a potential source of modulation a personalized modulation. And so in some patients, particularly this is true for the colitis patients, and this is one of the few things we've seen differences. We don't want to oversell that because I think it requires more data sets to be able to conclude that. And given the number of patients we study, this could just be by chance that we see this. But we saw more of these, uh, what we call inflammation-dependent alternative macrophages. So these IDA macrophages, we know that they're inflammation dependent because we only see them in patients with inflammation. They're never present in healthy tissue, but they're not fully M1 macrophages. Where they come from, what they represent, this is something that is just speculative based on the analysis of our data. And then, of course, that's where the spatial resolution help us a lot. Because when we went with these data sets into the Cosmics data set, that's when we started to be able to, first of all, can we find these cells in the tissue? And it was really nice to see that the two resident macrophages that we find in healthy humans, we can find them in all the individuals. As we see with single cell, both healthy and inflamed, these cells are present. But we also found, you know, the M1 macrophages and also these IDA macrophages. So the IDA macrophages, then when we started to go into a little bit more, represent a population that, at least to our knowledge, has not been as such described before. Though there are some hints in the literature to something similar, but in the at least in the gut, in IBD, there was no previous report of this to our knowledge. And they have a very interesting signature because they include genes that are known as promoting regeneration of the epithelium. 
So when we initially identified this cluster, I called them good healing macrophages because I thought, okay, these are macrophages that are being promoting. They produce neuregulin, which is a very interesting molecule, very potent on the epithelium. But then when we started to look at it more and more, we realized that neuregulin was not expressed by all IgA macrophages. And probably what it is is that even within this IgA cluster, we have different cell types. And it's just a problem of number of cells that we are studying. So I think they represent a complex population. Some of them, we can see them with the nanostream data set and also by doing immunostainings and in-situ hybridizations are very clearly positioned at the right underneath the epithelial layer. Together with fibroblasts that are also producing those we can see by single cell and we can identify them in the mucosa. So there's two sources of neuregulin at that top of the creep, underneath the surface epithelium, producing active amounts of neuregulin. We see a huge increase in neuregulin expression when there's inflammation in terms of transcription overall in bulk biopsies. And then we see that these neuregulin macrophages are more present when there is inflammation. But then thanks to the spatial analysis, we found that there are new IDA macrophages in other places that are not by the epithelium with potentially completely different roles. So again, pointing to that this is not a single type of cell cluster, most likely. We need to have more data. We need to have more patients and continue to study this. But the second type of IDA macrophages were very abundant in fibrotic tissues where there's a lot of fibroblasts, but also in these granuloma structures that are very, very specific of Crohn's disease and actually are a diagnostic feature of Crohn's disease. They're present in, in about 30% of patients with Crohn's disease, not in ulcerative colitis. And in those clusters of those granulomas, we didn't find M1s with CISOM, but the predominant macrophage in those was not a fully M1 activated, it was more of a IDA type macrophage in that particular patient. So. I think there's still a lot, a lot to learn from this for us. We are continuing to explore in these data sets, obviously, and working together with Nanostream to re-annotate all of these and look at cell-cell interaction algorithms that have been developed to study that, which I think will be the next step with this data set. Yeah, that's so exciting. I had a couple of questions. What about the myeloid and stroma makes them so heterogeneous? Yes, I think that it could be that either they're more sensitive to nuances in the microenvironment. Imagine you have all the epithelia, the colonocytes here, and a lamina fibroblast, for example, or an M2 macrophage, for example. So all those resident cells, the colonocyte, the resident macrophage, and the lamina propria S1 fibroblast. And now you give them a stimuli that is happening in there. You know, there's, I don't know, production of interferon gamma, because for whatever reason, or there's microbial signals or whatever. It's possible that all colonocytes will be responding very similar. They will have a program that is very unique to that response. And maybe even in front of different stimuli, they end up with a very similar profile, whereas macrophages or fibroblasts might be more sensitive and be responding more specifically and then giving rise to different types. That is one in the, the interpretation that we are working with. They're being more sensitive or maybe they're just more exposed also because of their location. Like the epithelium is in a place that it's more limited to the type of signals it's seeing, whereas macrophages are everywhere. They're infiltrating the entire 
they are underneath the epithelium, they're in the lamina propria, they're in the submucosa, they're within lymphoid structures, they're everywhere. They are surrounding vessels, they're surrounding enteric glia, they're everywhere. The other thing, for example, cells like T cells or plasma cells is another population that there's a lot of changes with inflammation. But again, we don't see that much heterogeneity. At the level we're studying it of the single cell clustering analysis, we're not seeing that. That doesn't mean that there is not, and we're just not using the approach that is sensitive enough to capture that. But at the level we're studying, macrophages and fibroblasts are much more responsive and adapting to the medium. Like I said, it could be just location dependent, like being everywhere, as opposed to other cell types that are more restricted to certain areas. I really don't know. And that's why when you go back to the spatial data and then you see, okay, look, this IDA, for example, they're, they're found in two specific locations, right? I mean, either here or in, in these granulomas. So it starts to give you a better idea of how location also is going to affect the diversity of the cell types. Another thought that I had was that within the myeloid compartment, between patients, were the proportions of macrophage subsets different from each other? Yes, absolutely. That's what I meant by diversity between patients. So, for example, there's a type of macrophage in one macrophage that we call CXCL5 that express high amounts of CXCL5. That cluster is present in one Crohn's disease patient. We do not find it, at least in the single cell data. In other cohorts that we have of UC patients, we see them too. So it's very patient dependent. We found it in other cohorts, but it's not a very common signature for the macrophages, but it's there. Whereas the ACOT1 macrophage, the more that is very present in pretty much most patients that we looked at. So yes, there are definitely differences in proportions and even in the fact that they are or they are not. The IDA macrophages in some patients are very common. In others, we hardly see any cells. So when we do the spatial, we see them in all the patients. But again, you know, we have six different patients that we're analyzing by spatial. So it's also very, very, could be very patient dependent. So yeah, there are a lot of nuances in the type of signatures that you get and therefore in the type of cell types that you get in each patient. That's what we think could be interesting to continue studying to see how that is could be potentially related to certain characteristics of the patients at that time or the ability to, you know, to potentially respond to a drug or not. That is way farther down the line for that. We need much more data, but that's the lines that we're thinking along that. Even going down, as you mentioned, like in a deeper dive with the data and perhaps seeing those cell-cell interactions through algorithms or if it's off the instrument, then that lets you see all those different cell types that you were talking about within the myeloid compartment, nearly 60 cell types, and how all of those can play a part with all these hypersensitive macrophages that then sort of cause that cascade effect, right? Right. I mean, you will also be just looking at a snapshot at the time of day and the limitation we were talking about before. But yes, I mean, I guess they would be like guilty for by association, no? Like if we try to find, you know, I see them together a lot, you know, there must be something going on. <laughs> type of, so that's the, the type of analysis we already did in the paper. It was kind of like a simple version of that, like a correlation analysis, try to see, okay, yes. where are these, these cells found together commonly throughout the different samples and different fields of view? 
that we are analyzing, kind of that idea, yes. So that was done at that, just that level of they are together, they seem to be found in the same surrounding area. That's where we found the association between these inflammatory fibroblasts and the IDA uh, macrophages. But I think the type of analysis we're, we're working on now would be more of a receptor ligand interactions, like looking into expression of particular genes in this cell and what are they. You know, kind of like the algorithms like the cell phone does, but for, or the MishNet, all these different tools that allow receptor ligand analysis in single cell data sets, but applied to the more relevant information is that I first need to know this cell is in contact with this cell, and then I'm going to look at what are the receptor ligands expressed. As you mentioned, those IDA macrophages were not identified in the subsets that were ported in. Was this just a function of perhaps the number of cells that were done through single cell or something else? My interpretation of that is if you notice, the things that we are able to reproduce are the resident macrophages, the M0s and M2s, those are found everywhere. And that just tells us that those are part of the composition of the tissue. They're patient independent. It's just if you have a gut, you have those cells. The other ones are just shaped by the environment. And I think that's why, for example, we found those in our IgA macrophages, this expressing neuroregulin, in our data set, and we were not able to see a cluster of those in other data sets. But the same way that we found, for example, certain clusters of M1s in other data sets that we don't find, you know, we can say they're all M1s, for example, no? So I think that is just reflecting precisely that this is very patient-specific and may not be common to all. In terms of the number of cells, our data sets, unfortunately, pretty small. So in terms of number of cells, those data sets may have more cells. I'm just saying this, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but they may have even more myeloid cells than we do. So I don't think it's a problem. As I mentioned, in the when we pull together all the samples that we have analyzed in the lab, you know, those 100 samples, then we have much larger numbers and we consistently see these across different patients. So it's not something that is in this data set of these 18 patients. But I think it's probably just, even though if you look for energy one expression in your macrophages, you see any certain cells that are positive, they're not forming a cluster in those data sets for whatever reason. And so they might not be abundant enough or different enough from the other cells to do that. I feel like it's almost like randomly you capture certain states of the macrophage process and that's what you have in it on each cell. That's one interpretation. I'm sure there are many others. What would you say impressed you the most about the data that you received from the Cosmics instrument? I think that being able to label transfer our data set into that, what, that was the most exciting benefit that we got from it. It's like seeing the same cells that we have been annotating and characterizing in the single cell, being able to, using just a few genes to identify them of where they are in the tissue. So by transferring those annotations into the tissue, that was extremely useful. And then, of course, all the benefits of having the structure and the architecture of the tissue there, being able to see at the same time 60 different cell types in the same image, that is really cool. So sometimes it's more of a limitation of the number of colors you can put in a picture rather than the information is there. So you can go and say, okay, I want to look at this particular neutrophil subset and this, the T-Rex, and show me this and this and that. And and you can do that and, and spend your day playing with that. So that is definitely, so far with what we've done with the data set, the most exciting part. 
I can see a lot of the cells and interaction analysis in the future, in the present, but we're still working on it. And then I think that what would be really important is when we, when these technologies develop so we can have more genes per cell analyzed. Because right now, the number of genes more or less that we were getting from these is about 200, something like that. On the other hand, you know, we have like half a million cells analyzed here. So that's a lot of cells with a special uh, annotation. But, you know, those 200 genes, while they're enough for us to label transfer, if we wanted to do clustering from the data set and identifying populations from the data set and even gene programs analysis, which is what we want to do next with the single cell data, that we cannot do yet because of the number of genes. So it's a huge improvement, obviously, in the right direction. But I think as the technology continues to evolve, which I, I know it's going to continue to evolve to that, to those panels of more genes, when we get to that, really, I don't see the limit to the type of analysis you can do. I'm sure there is, but I, I don't see it right now. <laughs> the next question I had related to one of the figures I saw on the paper, it was between the healthy colon patient UMAP, so that was six healthy patients, and then the 12 uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease UMAP. And I noticed that the UMAP for IBD patients was a lot more sparse, as well as a bunch more clusters, a few more clusters that were in different areas. This was uh, for the myeloid populations? I believe so. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe you're referring to that because when you have just the healthy colon, you really have only two types of macrophages. So then you've got sort of like that uniformity. Yes. Like I said, and then we reproduce it with the other data sets. It's these two types. The backbone of their gene expression is, is a macrophage, highly phagocytic cell type. And then you don't have any neutrophils, which is another big subset in patients in the myeloid UMAP. But then when we have the patients, then we have a lot more macrophages and a lot more types of macrophages. And then we find the neutrophil cluster that obviously is not in the healthy samples and so that adds a lot to the myeloid compartment expands a lot and then we have also we didn't mention but we have also the inflammatory monocytes that are recruiting de novo to the tissue potentially also giving rise the two sources the resident macrophages turning into inflammatory macrophages and the monocytes that are recruited that are also becoming inflammatory that think that they are both contributing to the macrophages that we find in the tissues the reason why I actually brought that up was, were you able to sort of triangulate where those disparate clusters map back into the tissue, figuring out where that gene signal is coming from? You mean in the spatial data? Like from the UMAP to the spatial data. What we did is transfer that annotation, those genes that characterize... Right, 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 right. okay. Yeah, so for example, for the M0 cluster, which is shown in that UMAP in Muslim Green, we took that signature into the spatial data. And yes, we find the M0s, we find the M2s, and then also the M1s and the IDAs and the monocytes. You know, all those can be labeled transferred into the tissues. So I suppose I'm speaking to you at the beginning of what seems to be a, a real adventure. What are your future plans to further investigate? We have a lot of projects ongoing right now using single cell, for sure. We've done some other special technologies and we're, we're trying some other special approaches that are not cosmics. But we do plan to continue doing the 
cosmics on future studies. So the projects that we're working on now are mostly focusing on specific problems with the disease. One of them is focusing on a phenotype, a complication that about a third of patients with Crohn's have, which is fistulizing disease. And this is a severe form of the disease that, especially the type we're used to, we're studying with perianal fistulizing disease. It causes a lot of pain and discomfort to patients that is very difficult to treat. They're not specific treatments to these complications. And so it's a huge and net need in the Crohn's disease patients. And so we're doing single cell characterization of those. And also we are interested in studies where we look at response to drugs, like I mentioned before, using single cell. So we're working on that too. We are interested in benchmarking some of these, like the cosmics, and we have data sets on special transcriptomics on vision and also another technology that we're going to try next. And so our idea being, you know, compare what are the advantages or the disadvantages. And because I think all technologies have good things and some limitations, obviously. Right now, Cosmix is the one that is offering us the most because of the single set resolution. But I'm sure that it can be, for certain studies, maybe that you don't need the Cosmix to answer your question and you can use some other technology. So that's something we are interested in continuing to develop. But... Like I said before, in terms of questions we're trying to answer, is like the overall goal is the understanding of the heterogeneity. And this is where we're going to need a lot more data. And not just data, but new ways to analyze it. I think that that's the frontier right now. You know, it's like the developing methods are helping us a lot into really getting all the information from the data we already have. Could we do a quick fire round so i'll say a word and you respond with the first word that comes to mind sure heterogeneity oh fun (laughs) (laughs) the gut the gut i think it's the wild west (laughs) (laughs) macrophages Hmm. i picture macrophages as friendly guys i I like macrophages so i'll say friendly Gut flora. Oh, gut flora. That's the unknown. <laughs> I'm trying to remove myself from the gut microflora studies because I think I have a lot of respect for that. And I think it deserves an entire commitment to study that. I mean, I think it's the unknown. Yeah. There's literally, we, we're not even scratching the surface there. But There's a very cute phrase that was coined. I think Chris Mason said it at last year's AGBT, bugs in space. <laughs> <laughs> Barcelona. Oh, Barcelona. There's a lot of words. I think uh, home. <laughs> I guess it's home and change. For me, Barcelona has changed a lot through my lifetime. And I sometimes I see that with a little bit of nostalgia. And what about yourself, Azucena? I think it's, you know, what characterizes me probably is not afraid to try key to everything we do is not being afraid to just be the person that knows the least about what you're trying to learn. Be humble. I think humble. I don't know, saying that is not very humble, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) I I do consider myself as somebody that, you know, and I am a Leo, you know, I I have an ego. (laughs) It's not that I don't, 
But I think we that, all do. Yeah. yes, and I think that like you said, we all do. And I, it would be wrong to say no. I just don't. Care. No, I do care about recognition and all that. And it's not that I don't care, but I think that science humbles you every day because every time they try to do something, it's go back to zero, you know. And so, yeah. if you don't have that attitude, it makes no sense to be in this area, you know, to do research. So many times, you know, I have reinvented myself many times through my career. And I think that's what's really make it interesting and interesting to me, at least, you know. So, yes. And to do that, you have to learn to be humble. I remember one of the first things I noticed when I started as a student is, wow, you have to be very patient. And I wasn't patient, you know. You're young and plus I am not especially patient myself, but, you know, you're like 20 something and you think everything is going to work the first time you do something, you know, and then that humbles you. Yeah, no, I mean, that's characterized by your whole career. I mean, studying chemistry in your bachelor's, shifting across to research in a hospital for your PhD, and then even going and doing basic research when what you had been used to was in vivo. Yeah, I have a lot, obviously, because of my job, I interact with a lot of very young people in the lab, you know, and I also teach. And you have to advise many people that are starting and I see them, you know, I think, wow, it's so exciting to be now a scientist, you know, because there's so much to learn and to do. But I think if something I, I try to teach is that you have no idea what you're going to end up doing. So open your, your ears and your eyes, you know, and just be ready to move. I mean, even single cell, we thought, you know, wow, it took us, you know, it's, it's a learning curve and it's a lot of new information and new ways of dealing te- technically, but also the data and understanding, interpreting. But I already feel like when we started doing the special, it's like, okay, chop, chop, this is moving. Now you have to hop onto the next train and this never stops. And every time it's faster and faster and faster. So you have to have that attitude of, okay, I know zero about this, but we're going to start from zero. So making mistakes, trying, asking, you know, asking people, for help some will help some will not but you know and then helping others when you can so it's a community i experience an incredible community in the single selfie people are extremely open to collaborate to help to share so that's what also makes it a really appealing community because even for somebody like us that we have never done anything we didn't even come from that background to just jump in and having all these other groups that have helped us it's been really, really. So just think you're going to find people that are going to help you, but you have to do your part also, which means be humble, be ready to learn, be ready to listen, and to not be afraid to try new things. Something that's been playing in my mind lately is that idea of people being afraid to take risks. And what you explained to me was sort of like, you have to move, or in a case as perhaps a young researcher, you sort of have to move with the way that the field is going. Otherwise, the true risk is just staying put and not moving at all. Because as you mentioned as well, back then you could perhaps do something simple and that could could have been published, but that's not seen as novel or useful anymore. So then you have to be adaptable and willing to move. Yes, you have to definitely be adaptable. It's also the risk on the other side. And I think that's also a risk that you have to have all the latest technology and the most expensive gadgets in order to publish something, which also doesn't make sense. And it shouldn't be that way. So 
I think as a community, we also have to be aware of that, that sometimes it's not just about dumping all our data and doing multi-omics of everything, because then the risk is that you're just generating a lot of data, but how is that meaningful and impactful? And that, I think, is the challenge for everyone working, not just especially human, because there's so much that you can do. But also in mice models and animal models, there's those problems too. But obviously, it's more so in human, where you cannot just do whatever you want or the experiment that you would do in a mouse. I'm not trying to say, okay, you know, to be successful in science, you have to be always doing the latest technology. And not necessarily, especially I think as a young person, you need to specialize you need to learn something really well and be very good at it. It's different in my stage in my career where I need to know a lot about different things and just hire people that know a lot about specific things. But at the early stages, you want to become an expert in your thing. But don't get so in love with your expertise that you're not ready then to the next step. So just because I did all my PhD doing multicolor flow cytometry and that's what I did, now, now I move as a postdoc, now I'm, and I'm always just really like, no, then you keep expanding and as you grow, you will be touching on more things. As you have people to help you, you will have to become less specialized and have more a broader knowledge. But I think for people in earlier career, you know, students for sure and postdocs, I think being very knowledgeable about your particular area, field, technology, whatever you're working on, use that time to learn as much as possible and to become very valuable on that. Because then when you are able to choose what you want to do, you have all those tools. And if you have the mindset to learn and to adapt and you're not afraid to try new things, I cannot code, but I have people in the lab that will do that. So I don't need to know and it would be great if I knew and I'm trying to learn now, but... I will probably never be able to do what they do, but as long as I have the people that do it and I can understand what they're doing and we can talk about it, then is when you get in the second stage of your career is when you get to do that. And for that period, you have to be ready to adapt, ready to learn, ready to hire somebody that will know much more about their stuff than you do and be happy with that. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you will not be the most expert anymore in that. But you will learn from them too. Yeah, Dr. Salas, thank you for that insightful advice. Honestly, I'm, I'm probably going to take on some of that myself. Thank you so much for hopping onto the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings, or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.